Hey, everybody. All right. It is Tuesday. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Galentine's Day. Happy <laughs> Palentine's Day. Happy Mom and Times Day, whatever it is that you're doing today to celebrate love in the world, which you should celebrate because love is great. It's all right. I agree. Right? I agree. I'm wearing earrings, the hearts, wearing a sweatshirt with hearts. I feel like I'm ready. This is my holiday. I love it. I love it. And uh, in case you are listening to the show and you're like, wait, that's not Jason, because he would definitely ne- never wear heart earrings. You are correct. <laughs> Jason. You never is- know. You never know. You never know. <laughs> Um, Jason's had a speaking gig today, but Rachel and I, Rachel Reporting and I are going to do a little bit of news and then we have a great interview for you coming up. It's going to be a great show. Awesome. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Go to squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. House of Macadamias, the next big health trend. Get 20% off your first purchase and a box of Jason's favorite dark chocolate covered macadamias with every order over three boxes. And Fitbod. Tired of doing the same workouts at the gym? Fitbod will build you personalized workouts that help you progress with every set. Get 25% off your subscription or try out the app for free when you sign up now at fitbod.me slash twist. Um, all right. So it turns out let's let's go into a little bit of news here because there was a little bit of a bombshell report from the Washington Post yesterday. Actually, I think this published Monday, but we made we definitely want to talk about it today um, about apps sharing all kinds of our data. Rachel, give us the give us the overview here, if yeah. you wouldn't mind. So it's it's pretty crazy. Americans' mental health data is being sold from telehealth and therapy apps, and it's perfectly legal even without the person's um, knowledge or consent. Um, I think we all kind of knew that our data was being sold, but we didn't kind of know at this scale, especially in the health data department. And a research from a team over at Duke University's Samford School of Public Policy, not Stanford, by the way, it's Sanford. thought that was interesting. Okay, tricky. They found that, mm-hmm. I know, right? They found 11 companies too, that they were willing, um, but they found 11 companies were willing to sell bundles of data that included, quote, information on what antidepressants people were taking, whether they struggled with insomnia or attention issues, and details on medical alignments, including Alzheimer's disease or bladder control difficulties, according to the Washington Post. And if you remember back on episode 1469, we actually talked about a telehealth company called Cerebral. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's fast and loose prescription method. And it was probed by the DOJ um, at that time for overprescribing um a lot of prescription medications. And some of the data that was offered during this research um, was in a format that would have let buyers know information like how many people in a zip code might be depressed. And other brokers went even deeper offering identifiable data, names, addresses, and income. Um, and by the way, Cerebral is not one of these people actually identified. Um, they just said that there were 11 companies that were willing to sell bundles of data. Right. But and we, right. we, we should specify this, here so. that in this case, because we had already talked about Cerebral and Rachel in particular was like, this company seems like they are pushing the boundaries. And indeed, <laughs> there have been investigations since. But so you could imagine a company, you know, like Cerebral being an example of a company that had collected a lot of data. Like you would do this uh, intake. With these companies where they get a lot, I don't know if you've ever done any kind of a mental health intake, whether it's with an app or even a doctor, but it is a very invasive 
procedure, if you will, right? They get a lot of information about you. And one of the things we should point out here is that uh, the data brokers offered personal identifiable information, names, addresses, incomes about people. They would even show lists called things like anxiety sufferers and consumers with clinical depression in the United States, which yikes. It was described as a tasting menu for buying people's health data. And Rachel, one of the things that you found is that this is just 100% legal, right? It is. It is totally legal um, because everybody is like, wait, how is this legal because of HIPAA? And that was definitely my first, first thought. It turns out after looking into it, HIPAA only restricts how covered health entities share Americans' health data. And covered health entities, by the way, that means places like hospitals and doctor's office. Um, this does not protect the same information when it's sent anywhere else. So that means app makers and other companies can legally share and sell data uh, just however they want. I mean, that's absolutely bananas. And it just, to me, like points to how overdue we are for freaking federal privacy legislation in this country. Like as soon as we realized we could appify mental health and prescriptions, and now you have all of these companies who are doing some version of supplements, right? Like all of these things that are kind of medically adjacent and are intended to treat the same issues that you would see a doctor about, but instead you get ashwagandha instead of, you know, hormone replacement therapy. But then they have all of this information and there's nothing stopping them from mm -hmm. sharing it. Like in retrospect, I can't believe that Congress had a big hearing about Ticketmaster and not this. Like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Yeah. And what do you think, I guess, the main problems are with companies actually having this data? Uh, one example that the Washington Post used was they were doing more targeted advertising. Um, but is there anything else you think consumers should be worried about with this data um, really being handled by people we don't know about? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of like you could imagine that if you have access to this data, um, among the many things you could do is like crappy social engineering to hack people. You could pull all kinds of scams, you know, and also. It, this is one of those where it's sort of like maybe the harm is hard to imagine. Maybe the harm is like, well, certainly there's the privacy harm, right? Like, let's say you start getting targeted with advertisements for your clinical depression and like someone in your family doesn't know you have that, right? You're underage or you're a wife and maybe you are somebody who's in an abusive relationship and you sought help for that. And then all of a sudden you get like a flyer in the mail that's like being abused and all of a sudden your life is in danger, right? Like the harms here aren't even particularly hard to imagine, but then there's just the sheer sick absurdity of the fact that we have HIPAA rules that are in some cases so ridiculous that you can't even like email with your doctor Yeah. on one hand, but on the other hand, the exact same information is just like packaged up and sold. And it's like, you're all depressed. You could get dropped to buy your insurance if this data got out, you could get fired, you know, or put on some sort of leave, like you could be discriminated against at work because it came, comes out that you're a clinical depression sufferer, like absurd. It is beyond unacceptable that this is just like, la la la. Yeah, this Congress, has been an issue. Do your yeah. job. Right. It's been an issue for so long. Back in 2013, uh, Pamela, uh, Pam Dixon, who is the founder and executive director of World Privacy Forum, which is like a research and advocacy group, testified at a Senate hearing that an Illinois pharmaceutical and marketing company had advertised a list of uh, reported rape sufferers and it had over a thousand names on it. And that whole list was 
going to be sold for 80 bucks and they were selling it. Um, and after this testimony, it was removed shortly. But Dixon even commented now on what's happening with this health data. And she said, quote, um, they're building inferences and scores and categorizations from patterns in your life or actions where you go, what you eat, and what are we supposed to do, not live? And I think that's a great point. Um, like there's no real way of getting around this. And now it's even targeting what we saw during the pandemic as something great, telehealth, because not everybody can reach a hospital and afford to go into a hospital. So it's like, what do we do now if these are if telehealth is the option for a lot of people? Right. What are alternatives? And it's where the government has to step in. Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, we have been like consumers, privacy advocates have been asking for federal privacy laws for I think close to a decade at this point. Like it is an it is a truly unacceptable failure of governing at this point. Get it done. Get it done. And the government's had also issues, I guess, like regulating pharmaceuticals coming out of these telehealth and pharmacies, like we mentioned earlier, with cerebral, um, and how they they were getting probed by the DOJ. And I know and there's a bunch of stuff kind of on Twitter about this, about people lying about um, their symptoms and getting medication and stimulants and antidepressants right. or whatever online. And I wonder, um, do you think this amount of data that is probably false could impact data brokers and how that impacts like in turn the consumers that are being targeted by these data brokers? Sure. Right. Potentially. Like there's a million problems with it. Is the data accurate? Is it? And then are people going to be wrongly targeted with advertising because they lied about stuff? Like it's just, it, it is a huge mess and should probably become, I mean, congratulations to the Washington Post for publishing it because it should probably be a way bigger story. Right. And um, if you go on the subways in New York, there's actually an advertisement right now for Lexapro, which is an anti-anxiety medication. I believe also a uh, antidepressant. And it's by a company called Hers, Hims and Hers, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting seeing that marketing. And I, when I was on the subway, I was like, I wonder if this is one of the companies um, that was able to get data and target it in like this certain area because there's more people that um, suffer from anxiety. So interesting to see where this goes in the future. Okay, everybody, I'm thrilled to announce we're bringing back the Show Us Your Space competition in partnership with our friends at Squarespace. We did this last year and it was a huge hit. Here's how it works. Very simple. We're going to give one Twist listener $1,000 in Squarespace credits. If you run any kind of e-commerce related business, maybe a D2C, consumer goods business, a marketplace, a subscription service, online courses, you get the idea. I want you to go to showusyourspace.com. And that's going to redirect you to a tweet from my Twitter handle, twitter.com slash Jason. And you will reply to my tweet with a short video, image, link, GIF, anything you want to show off your e-commerce site on Squarespace. And then we'll pick one winner and give them a $1,000 Squarespace gift card. This time, the contest is just for e-commerce businesses. Next month, we're going to mix it up and do a different category. If you want to be an entrepreneur, start a side project. Squarespace is how you do that. You all know that. And on Squarespace, you can build or sell anything. We love it here at launch. We use it for all our different projects, including Remote Demo Day. So here are some Squarespace features that founders love. Templates, analytics, inventory management, APIs, and they're always optimized for mobile as well as your desktop. So you can sell courses, content, whatever you need directly on Squarespace and keep that 15% that other platforms take. That's your money. You keep it. So head to squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain.
Speaking of things that are too good to be true, let's uh, let's talk about this interesting development in AI accuracy. Yesterday on the show, of course, we actually in a conversation about you know how to moderate this technology and how to deal with the content. We made the point. I made the point that this is very like alpha level tech that we're sort of presenting as though it's ready for prime time. And now here we have a story. Take us through it, if you will. A story about how it's super not. So I'm sure remember last week during Google Bard's unveiling, it recalled false information about the James Webb Space Telescope. And that was super embarrassing. The mistake caused the stock to tumble and wipe out $100 billion worth of market cap. So that was a super expensive mistake. And now um, a report in a blog post from this morning suggests maybe Bing's new chatbot isn't accurate as everyone thought it was. So... I guess it's not just Google. During the Microsoft event last week, the company shut off new capabilities in the Edge browser and included a demo where Bing's AI could consolidate the key takeaways of Gap's third quarter results, as well as compare the numbers to Lululemon's quarterly results. Um, But the demonstration, you know, we thought it was short and sweet and accurate, but turns out it was not. Turns out it was not. There was a blog post uh, that went up today, a DKB blog, shout out to Dimitri Baraton, and we hope we're saying your name right, um, wrote a post breaking down some of the information that the AI bot presented that was inaccurate and in some cases apparently invented, which is kind of bananas. Um, so a couple quotes from the post. He said, Bing AI starts off fine with a, a statement that is totally correct, probably a direct copy paste from the financial document. And in that case, he's saying, you know, Gap Inc. reported net sales of 4.04 billion up 2% compared to last year and comparable sales were up 1% year over year. Then the chatbot uh, went on to say, Gap Inc. reported an operating margin of 5.9% adjusted for impairment charges and restructuring costs. And then Baraton reports, no, (laughs) 5.9% is neither the adjusted nor the unadjusted value. This number doesn't even appear in the entire document. It's completely made up. So producer Brian went and checked the actual gap earnings report and found that, yep, uh, the operating margin, including impairment, is 4.6%, and excluding impairment is 3.9%. None of those numbers are 5.9%. So it looks like my job is safe for a while, though. I think it probably AI's not is. taking producing jobs. That is good. Definitely not. Right? Like AI. And that is not the only thing that it just made up. Like it said, the bot presented a diluted earnings per share of 42 cents adjusted for impairment charges, restructuring costs and tax impacts. According to Baraton, again, this number is fabricated and does not appear in the earnings report. The adjusted diluted earnings per share are 71 cents and the unadjusted is 77 cents. And again, the bot said 42. That's like, insane. it's just bonkers. So and there are off. multiple examples like this in his blog post where it's just like, whoa. Have you used AI yet where it has given you a super wrong like data point? Cause I have, I was on notion actually. And what I was doing is I was taking bullet points for my resume and saying, Hey, can you write these in paragraph format? So I can put them up on like a personal website or just do something else with my information. Mm-hmm. And it came up with like data points that were just pulled out of the blue on when during the notion AI um, 
a use case. And I was like, where is it getting this? Like, have you have you had any of these experiences like using generative AI to try to like create text? No. And I guess I'm glad that I am weirdly like too busy or too lazy to go try to use. like, I'm always just like, ah, I'll just do this thing. And I haven't tried to do that yet. But now I'm not going to. I mean, yeah. and this is like, I think what probably more and more people are going to discover because you only have to get burned by this once or twice. And if you were like, let's say you're a financial reporter and you pulled numbers from ChatGPT or Bing, right? Or OpenAI, mm-hmm. like, or whatever, Google's Bard. And it just literally, like, the <laughs> it, during this demo, the bit of the Edge demo, the Bing demo, they compared Gap's data to Lululemon's earnings. And it, the bot reported that Lululemon's gross margin uh, was 58.7%. And the gross margin reported in the earnings statement was 55.9%. 58.7% does not appear anywhere in the document. That's crazy. Pulling numbers out of thin air. And producer Brian made a good point. And he was like, AI, AI is like the new NFT. It's overhyped um, with a really poor user experience. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think the user experience is actually probably too good. Right? Okay. Like, yeah. It, it's Everybody too good in the sense that like, if something just confidently gives you, if it's like, who, like who in their right minds? And clearly this is why this happened. Like, it's easy to be like, was maybe you would go, okay, was the James Webb, Webb telescope the first to see an exoplanet, right? Like when I went to journalism school, one of the things that we was drilled into our heads was to always be uh, wary of superlatives. So when you hear like first, best, greatest, any of those exclusive only, those are words that you always want to double check. They should ring an alarm bell inside your brain because it's like, eh, you will always find a case of something else, right? It's very rare for something to truly be the first or the best or the greatest or the only. But like 57.8 cents, you know, diluted earnings per share or whatever. You're just like, yeah, that sounds, I mean, what would make you think I should go check that? So that's a case where the user interface is perfect. It's yeah. like, here's here's some super legit sounding information and I got it for you in six milliseconds. And you're like, amazing. <laughs> but then it's wrong. Yeah. And it's crazy how it like started <laughs> off, I guess, like chat GPT and everything was super open. And now there's more paywalls and stuff being opened up. But there are other startups and other companies coming out that don't have paywalls. So and unlike NFTs, NFTs where there was always like kind of a barrier of knowledge or a barrier, at least financially, chat GPT, it feels like every time somebody tries to put a barrier on one product, or generative AI in general, every time somebody tries to put a barrier on one product, another one pops up and says, hey, it's free. Um, yeah. At least for like this limited time, and everybody just starts using that one until the next one um, comes up, and it says it's free. And the first one they used puts up those barriers again. Totally, yeah. I mean, I think the takeaway here, and and really, everybody really should go read this blog post. It's it's quite shocking the degree to which huge chunks of, I mean, and again, like let's not over, let's not skim past the part where. Google lost $100 billion in market cap over putting out an ad with inaccurate information in it that somebody happened to catch. Microsoft has been booming, soaring, (laughs) right? Everybody's like, Microsoft wins. Google's not ready for prime time. And in fact, Microsoft's tool was literally inventing financial performance 
Yeah. And that's not all that's in the blog post. He basically fact checks almost every part of that Bing demo and is like, nope. It's crazy. And producer Brian went and fact checked him. Yes. So we have like <laughs> so many people fact checking and being like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something I mean, sounds fishy. Maybe, maybe the upside here is that human fact checking will start to have more value. But yeah, do not like Microsoft really got away with one here. And the real takeaway should be is that like none of this is ready for prime time. Let me tell you about House of Macadamias. Yes, this brand has a special place in my heart because the founders, Carmen and Brandon, well, they're Twist listeners. They've been listening to this podcast and they told me that they got inspired to start this company after listening to this very pod and reading my book, Angel. In fact, their first angel investment wound up hitting it big and they used the returns on that angel investment to start a nut business. These people are crazy. They're nuts. They started a macadamia nut business and it is delicious. You can see the graphics on the screen all nuts are not created equal peanuts almonds cashews walnuts those are you know they're good nuts but macadamias are the elite great nuts they're higher in omega-7s and that's been linked to fat loss and natural collagen they have more healthy fats they have less carbs and every product is vegan keto and paleo i love these i love the dark chocolate covered ones that's just me they have beautiful macadamia bars buy some of these keep them in your uh, desk drawer that's a healthy snack for you to have they also have some zesty spicy ones if you're having that kind of a day i like to do that if i have like a nice iced tea and I can uh, pair it with a zesty salsa dry roasted. So here is your call to action. Support a founder and have great macadamia nuts that are healthy and delicious. Houseofmacadamias.com slash twist. Houseofmacadamias.com slash twist. Right now, you get 20% off by using the promo code twist20. That's right. 20% off. Houseofmacadamias.com slash twist. And over under five years, when will it be ready for prime time? I mean, honestly, I've been using the self-driving car analogy. Which is like everybody, I was at the DARPA, the second DARPA Grand Challenge in wow. 2004. I know. That is so sick. Very old. <laughs> it was a really fun day in the desert. But that was 2004. And they were like, we'll have self-driving cars on every road by 2010. Wow. And here we are in the year of our Lord 2023. And like <laughs> Amazon, I think just today launched some self-driving taxis with like really, really limited rollout. Mm -hmm. And we're like still so far from that technology yeah. and if you assume that actual ai that is accurate and trustworthy and safe and all of those things is in the early innings i'm taking the over okay Let's i'm taking it. over on a decade even oh wow okay yep i the only thing i can think about where it's under would be education just because i have college age siblings and even if it's not for doing something like writing an essay mm -hmm. if they have a prompt it at least gives you like an outline and so I do wonder about that use case, but that's really been the only one that I've seen. And I guess small copywriting, like over, um, I've seen a company called Tribe Scaler. He was actually an OK Boomer, Alex Banks, great company, oh, yeah. uh -huh. where they made short tweets. And I was like, that is, that is smart. But I haven't seen anything like long form yet where I'm like, that seems like a great idea. Right. I think it'll be an assistant yeah. in some ways, but it's, a, it's an assistant that you have to monitor very carefully. It's like having a toddler. But, I like assistant. that. I like that. It's like an assistant. That's actually so true. That is a good, that's a good analogy. I, I, I guess there's another, um, so right now producers are safe, but EAs, you know, keep an eye out. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Google can call it, like it's chatbot can call and make you a restaurant reservation and then email you <laughs> that, that you have that. Like, that's true. That's a very scary one, but still yeah. it's not even as good as that. It's like, 
It's going to be an extremely narrow use case. Yeah. I predict for a very long time. Yeah, definitely. Um, All right. Next up, we have an awesome interview. Uh, Jason talked to IVP partner Tom Lavero. And if you are a listener to All In, you heard a reference to this, or maybe you just saw this thread on Twitter, Tom's thread about a mass extinction event coming to startups. It went viral recently. And so Jason was like, get them on. And they had a apparently quite interesting conversation about mm-hmm. Tom's startup and VC predictions for the second half of 2023 and early 2024. You might just want to like steal yourself <laughs> for this conversation. Um, yeah. But it's a great, it's a great interview. It's coming up right now. All right, everybody. Uh, last week, a Twitter thread went viral about a mass extinction event that would happen to startups Late in 2023 and into 2024, you might have heard me talk about it a little bit. We referenced it on All In uh, last episode. So I thought I would invite the author on to This Week in Startups to talk about it. Tom Levero is a general partner at IVP, Institutional Venture Partners. has been there for eight years. Welcome to the program, Tom. Thanks for having me. All right. So you wrote this tweet storm. Did you expect that this would get so much attention? Number one. To be honest, um, the amount of attention it's gotten has been a, a pleasant surprise, but that was also kind of the point to get the founders advice out there and, and hope folks paid attention. But yeah, I think it struck a chord we weren't really fully expecting. All right. Yeah. 2.7 million views uh, in less than a week here. Uh, in a, yeah. In exactly a week, actually. Uh, so you said prediction, there's a mass extinction event coming for early and mid-stage companies. Late 23 and 24 will make the 08 financial crisis, which we lived through, uh, look quaint for startups. Below, I explain why and how it will start and offer detailed advice to founders surviving the looming die-off. So let's start with why is this going to happen? Because the prevailing wisdom is a ton of dry powder was raised during the up market 2020, 2021. 2022, not so much, but we are told there's this massive amount of dry powder. Wouldn't that dry powder go right into these startups? It's a great question. And to me, it's kind of like when you hear the old adage, um, don't make hope your strategy. I would say, don't make dry powder your fundraising strategy. Okay. Um, And what I mean by that is this is kind of the point of the thread. The world has changed. And I do think there's going to be an extinction event. This is not an asteroid hitting Earth, though. This is climate change. It'll creep up on you very slowly and quietly. And if you don't notice it, you could get burned. Hmm. And so, you know, what what happened? Well, you know, a lot of young, younger founders, entrepreneurs and and VCs alike, the last couple of years and, and beginning of 20 just were very atypical. It was like the laws of physics were suspended. You saw public companies trading at 50 times revenue, lots of private companies getting valued at 100, 200 times revenue. It's like the laws of physics have set back in. You look at the valuations of public companies and when gravity returns, things fall. Hmm. And so that's where we are now. And it's not like the economy is in bad shape. It's in fine shape. It's just that when you go back to normal times, There's this hangover effect, and that's what folks need to be careful of. And I think there's some knock-on effects from a lot of capital having been deployed the last couple of years. There's going to be less capital and a a pickier fundraising environment ahead. 
Okay, and you point out correctly, you know, many startups, they did, uh, what are the, what's the expression, make hay when the sun was shining? They raised intelligently in 2021, uh, and maybe even in 2022, when the window is still open a little bit. And they raised, typically a startup raises 12, 18 months, I think we would agree. And some of them made cuts and got that to maybe two years of runway. So there's many startups here sitting on two years of runway as of 2021. But that means in 2023, we're going to see them arrive. And you point out that January Ventures said for, did a survey of 450 founders and four in five of early stage companies said they had fewer than 12 months of runway. Um, and so this means a flood of folks will start raising at the back half of 2023, based on this sort of multi signal data that you're 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 uh, picking up on, correct? That's correct. I think it's going to be a, a busy fundraising uh, time, the back half of this year and, and next year. And we're already seeing it begin to tick up just in the last mm -hmm. few weeks. Um, and we're seeing more structure on deals. We're not imposing that structure, but hearing about structured deals getting done, down rounds, it's all very quiet. It's on the hush, but it's beginning to happen. And so mm -hmm. this is kind of the, you know, the quiet before the storm, so to speak. Let's talk about structure because many of the founders listening to this week in startups may not know what you mean by structure. Structure generally means a liquidation preference or a cram down round or warrants. Why don't we explain mechanically? Maybe you can give an example of something you've seen, but obscure it. Obviously, you have to tell us the companies, but give us an example of structure being put into a deal and how that affects, say, founders and employees at a startup. Yeah. So, um, typically, when venture investors make an investment, they have a what's called a one times liquidation preference, which means um, if the company sells for an amount where it's not, you know, a, a, a huge number, they're not um, converting into their ownership percentage, they're just getting their capital back. And so it's sort of a safety mechanism, it almost makes the venture investment debt like in, in downside scenarios. Um, and what you see begin to happen is in good times, that's the only the only feature is that one X lick pref. That's considered very plain vanilla run of the mill. Totally standard. No lawyer is going to tell you take this out or this correct. is non-standard. Uh, founders, attorneys, uh, venture capital firms, attorneys. Okay, yeah, one X participating uh, or one X liquidation preference, not participating preferred, but just a one X reference. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And Incentives are pretty aligned at that point. But what happens when companies raise a lot of money and then maybe the price goes down or, they, or the entrepreneur just loses leverage, um, especially in times like this, uh, entrepreneurs will see term sheets that have 2x liquidation preferences, meaning, you know, if they put in uh, 5 million and the company sells, let's say, for more than the capital invested in the company, but less than the price um, you know, on the term sheet, less than the valuation, that investor doesn't get their 5 million back, they get 10 million back. Right. So they're earning a return in this sort of downside scenario. And it can get worse than that. Um, you can have participation features, which means basically, it's sort of a, an equity like kicker for, for investors, they get extra, um, so extra returns after you subtract out mm. uh, the liquidation preferences. And you can have just funky things like blocks on different parts of the business, sale of the business, just the investors exerting more control mm. um, over every aspect of the business once once that sort of negotiating power turns around. 
Yeah, and so this liquidation preference, it was designed to preserve the downside of, oh, hey, the founders sell the company for only 5 million. We put, I don't know, 3 million into it in a seed round. Okay, we get our 3 million back. There's 2 million left for the common to split up, um, which kind of sucks. That means 60% went to the investors and maybe the investors had only bought 10% of the business. But because they get that out in a short sale, they get the majority of the money. Just like if you sold your home and it didn't appreciate the the mortgage you would have to pay back is there. And then there's this concept of participating preference, which is just a f- another way of saying you get your money back and you get your pro rata, you get your right. percentage ownership. So all this funkiness you're starting to hear, and I actually had the first example of it just last week where somebody was trying to close in on a company and just buy it for a dollar and basically foreclose on it. Um, and, and that I haven't seen since... Yeah, the dot-com era. I didn't even see that in the 2008 era. So we're starting to see these funky things get proposed or even some deals get closed with some of this funk in it, huh? Yeah, and you know, it's unfortunate because what a lot of structure can do is create disaligned incentives between classes of investors, say Mm. between your seed and your A and your B um, and between the founders. And so- Many VCs are hesitant to use a lot of structure mm. and, and are hesitant to do down rounds because they don't want to upset entrepreneurs or just get themselves into complicated situations like that. And so that's just another reason why the sort of notional amount of dry powder is less than it appears mm. um, because VCs are trained to generally, by and large, keep things pretty clean and uh, incentives aligned. And psychologically, it's harder to invest in a company if you know um, they're in a tough spot, then something that's just clean and up and to the right. Okay, so now this requires a little unpacking. Venture capitalists are humans, despite what people may have heard. And when a human is faced with the founder, and we've had this founder-friendly environment, and the founder's last valuation, let's just pick a number here, was $100 million, and they had a million in revenue, in today's market, even if they hit two, that 100x no longer applies. They're not worth 200 million on 2 million in revenue. Even if they doubled their revenue since their last round in 2021, that 2 million today might be worth 10 times that. And they're a $20 million company. And if they're a $20 million company and they've raised 15 million, that overhang is going to lead a venture capitalist. If you were to look at that deal, what would you think? You like the company, you like the founder, or let's just say you love the founder and you love the market and you love the fact that they doubled revenue in a challenged market but they have a hundred million valuation and there's been 15 million put into the business and you valued at 20. What are you going to do as a, an investor, Tom? How are you going to look at it? What's your internal dialogue going to be? So uh, this is where it gets, it gets a little thorny. Um, And I think it comes down to the investor's conviction. Hmm. Um, If you absolutely fall in love with an opportunity, a market, a company, and of course, and most importantly, the founder, you'll figure out a way to get it done. Um, I think the trick is there were, uh, uh, some VCs out there trying to put a lot of money out very quickly. There were funds getting deployed in six, nine, 12 months. Um, now as a VC, if you're, you know, uh, maybe a series B or C investor like myself, you normally do maybe two, three investments a year. Um, we kept that pace the last several years. There were folks doing 10 investments a year. You have to imagine if you go from doing 10 investments a year back to two or three, 
Some of the ones where your conviction was a little more marginal, you don't do that deal. Mm. And that's where I think the ones that are down are going to be harder for a lot of folks in the venture industry to do. Um, I've only done two or three deals a year for, you know, basically my whole career. Um, so I hope, and I, and we have a pretty good track record these, you know, last several quarters in 22 and 23 of announcing deals and getting deals done where we have high conviction, but it's hard. It's harder in a down environment. Um, and that's where I think a lot of the, the dry powder, you know, begins to sort of sublimate and go away. And, and some of the deals, um, you know, the bar gets higher for a lot of firms as they slow their pace to a normal venture pace of two and a half to three and a half year fund cycles. Okay, so this is critically important. People were going at a pace that was unsustainable. Venture capitalists and some of the public market investors who dipped down into our world, they just started sprinting. And they were running at a breakneck speed. They're doing a deal a week, a deal every two weeks. They're racking up 50 deals a year, sometimes two deals a week. Sometimes they're barely meeting the founders. They're just putting money in after a basic diligence and talking to the Series B investors or Series A investors and just throwing an extra 10 or 20 million on top. They're gone. They're not on the board. They're not company builders to begin with. Uh, they were making a late stage bet and trying to deploy capitaling. And they were even outsourcing their diligence, right? So um you know in in a basically a very scaled way they were giving this diligence over to us venture capitalists and saying well, we assume you did with the work now those people are not going to even pick up the phone are they they're just they're, they don't even have the dry powder themselves to invest or do bridge rounds so what what happens to that relationship that a founder might have had with some well, let's call it what it is people who got excited about venture but maybe just for a year or two yeah, you know, the industry term is venture tourists uh, that I've heard quite a few times. And I think um, it's, you know, during the tough times that the tourists tend to leave. Um, but that's why, you know, it, it's an adage in venture, but like your board is so important. Um, and the quality of your investors is important. And I think there is a bit of a, you know, a, a deal with the devil, so to speak, last few years where folks took money um from lots of different sources, they knew that might not be around forever. Um, but the incentive was probably to take it because, you know, when it rains, you turn your upside, your umbrella upside down and you and you take that capital. Um, but, you know, now it's the sort of other edge of the of the, of the the sword there where the downside is they might not pick up the phone. I've heard from some of our founders where they've texted some of that type of capital and they literally don't get a response. Wow. Um, and These so are people on the cap table, and they're not even minding the store of the investment. Incredible. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. But you know, that's where I think founders like in, if you're thinking about as a founder, what can I do better? How can I avoid these sorts of situations? Um, you know, frequent communication with your board members and your investors is really critical. Um, you know, there are probably some founders who thought they didn't need to communicate with their found uh, with their venture investors over the last couple of years. Now is a good time to change that. Monthly communication um, is best. Quarterly can work. Um, but the better, you know, insight and the better relationship you have with your founders, the more or with your investors, the more likely they are to support you. As you know, I've been on a health kick for over the past year. And you know, I care about data driven solutions as well. 
And if you listen to this podcast, I bet you do too. So let me tell you about FitBod. It's a data-driven workout app that blends machine learning with exercise science. FitBod creates a custom dynamic program based on your fitness goals, your experience, and what your available equipment is. And FitBod will maximize your fitness gains by varying the intensity and volume between your sessions. You can customize your length of workout, what muscles to target, and so much more. Look at this demo. Hey, let's say you got 30 minutes to work out and you want to work on your chest, triceps, and abs. But let's say I'm staying at an Airbnb and there's no equipment. Well, FitBod can create a perfectly optimized workout based on these parameters. Check it out. It's absolutely amazing. FitBod takes the guesswork out of fitness. Just open the app and start making progress. Get 25% off your FitBod subscription or try the app for free when you sign up now at fitbod.me slash twist. That's F-I-T-B-O-D dot M-E slash T-W-I-S-T for 25% off. There is a, or there was uh, some advice going around to founders that governance was not cool. Board meetings, not cool. Don't need to do them. Control provisions, you know, that venture investors were asking for, also not cool. Uh, and maybe that comes from, uh, you know, a past where maybe venture investors had a little too much power pendulum was uh, swung another way and founders were replaced. Uh, obviously, we know the history of that in Silicon Valley. But make your best case for when governance is a great thing and governance can help in times like this. Absolutely. Um, I mean, first of all, I think hearing from founders is really the, you know, hearing it from the right source. Uh, if you look at my Twitter thread the other day, some of the founders I work with retweeted it. Folks like uh, Armand Dadgar, the co-founder, CTO of HashiCorp. Um, I think when you have a really engaged board like Dave and Armand and Mitchell uh, from HashiCorp, they will work with you through the hard times. Um, they will be there for you, giving you good advice because it's their job and they have a sense of urgency. A board will ask tough and uncomfortable questions, which is tough and uncomfortable. But the good news is it makes you stronger. And we've noticed that the best founders tend to opt in to having things be more under a microscope. They want the, you know, amazing VP sales who's going to push back in the met times and the CTO who's not just going to, you know, do as they're told, but ask good questions. And so, um, I think it's the process that dialogue with a board that makes a company better. And it's not just about having brand name board members. And it's not just about like, you know, legal governance. It's really just about having a relationship, having people you can bounce things off of here and outsiders perspective. And the best boards are really good at asking hard questions and also being influential with a founder. Hmm. You've also started to give some advice in the tweet storm. Uh, and you, you gave seven uh, prescriptions here. Number one, raise money now before the great, great flood later in the year. This makes sense. And as you say, if you raise now and you don't get the, you don't close the deal, at least you tried and you're not part of the deluge that might overwhelm investors at the end of this year. Maybe expand on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit of the hope is a strategy thing that I'm trying to combat with that piece of advice, which is, well, uh, you know, we'll hear from founders, hey, maybe the economy will be better uh, in six months. Multiples will go back up. Yeah, but multiples could go down further. You could miss a quarter. Yeah. VCs could be more scared, deploying slower. 
there's a lot that could go wrong. And if you go out now and you get a frosty reception, you can always go back out again, go to a broader set of investors, go to strategics, whatever it is, you, you have more time. And if that fails, you have a chance to either cut burn again, uh, you know, potentially try and sell the company. The, the most dangerous mistake is to make it a high wire act and just really be out there with, without much room for error. Where if you can't raise fund uh, your funding in a in a given period of time, then you're barely making payroll, and you'd be surprised how often that's happened. No, I haven't seen that in several years. But after the dot com boom and the great financial crisis, this was something that was pretty commonplace in venture, where you had investors bridging companies that have three weeks of payroll together, and those bridges are almost always you know, throwing good dollars after bad, meaning it's not really funding the company enough to get them to a substantial milestone or even to a sale. And so you back into it and you say, we need to raise capital at least, I, I you know, I say a minimum of six months before you need it. And, and that means starting the fundraising process probably nine months before you need it. Making a list of targets, starting to set up the meeting. So if you've got, you know, 12 months of runway right now, in the next three months, you're going to want to start this process up. You're not going to want to wait six months or nine months for the market to get better. That's just not worth it. You need to have that runway. It, when you only have a couple of weeks of runway, what does that do in terms of VCs in this kind of market, even being able to get consensus inside of their firms? Yeah. I mean, once you're, I think, within under that three-month mark, um, the clock is ticking. First of all, just from a you know, negotiating point of view, I would counsel our CEOs, hey, you've lost leverage because they know the longer they draw out this process or the longer the process gets drawn out, um, the less cash you have as CEO and the less negotiating leverage you have. So that's that's thing number one. Number two, um, if you're out there, you you just you have to find chemistry with with venture investors. You have to find investors you really like. This isn't just about the capital. And that's a process that doesn't happen over 30 minutes in Zoom. You have to take your time on this stuff. Mm. Um, and, you know, what a VC might do in a partnership to, you know, directly answer your question is they may say, you know, hey, I really like this company. And somebody asks how much cash do they have? You say two months of cash. Another partner may ask, well, does that mean every other VC on earth has passed on this company? That's a, you know, that's a tough dynamic, especially for a younger investor who's maybe newer to their firm to answer. Like, why, why did the CEO let it get to this point? Um, uh, so I think if that's you a legit do question. burn it down to the end, you just say, hey, what is this person's judgment? If I do give them 18 months of runway, are they going to do this again? Yeah. And then why weren't am, they cultivating yeah. relationships with VCs for the past two years? You know, why hadn't they found people they clicked with and venture firms that really got excited about them? And, you know, why did they not cut burn earlier? It just it begins to introduce all these questions that you're now in the wrong territory. You want the VCs excited thinking about the upside. You've got the venture investor thinking about all the potential downside within three months. All right. Your second prescription, which you just uh, teed up was, hey, listen, you did your layoff. You cut burn. Great. Eh, maybe we cut it even more. You got to get rid of good to have. Everything's got to be focused on the core. That's super important. Point three, you want people to focus on survival, not valuation. Why don't you unpack that and how sometimes people get themselves into a little bit of a trap 
anchoring off the last price or what the market looked like last year, as opposed to maybe what it looked like five or 10 years ago. Yeah. So this is human psychology at work. It's what's called anchoring bias. Um, you know, we often believe something is worth the last reference point, regardless of how the world or the environment has changed around us. Um, and listen, there, there are good reasons why it's nicer to raise up or flat rounds versus down rounds in venture. Down rounds can be messy. But the truth is, at the end of the day, public companies, as I said in the thread, their stock prices go up and down. You know, look at Facebook, look at Google, Amazon, these largest market cap companies on earth can fluctuate wildly within weeks, months. Um, startups seem to think if their valuation fluctuates a little over a year or two that you know, it's ab absolutely devastating. And the truth is, no, if you have cash, you're still in business. Even if you have to take a lot of dilution and, and it's complicated because of a cram down or investors losing some of their money because the, the next round is at a lower price, fine, so be it. You know what? Investors lose their money too when, when the price of a stock goes down. It happens very quickly and nobody really talks about it. I think culturally, CEOs need to understand, um, you know, it, it is a little, it, it will feel um, emotionally hard, but at the end of the day, it's the market that sets the price, not the last round. And so, you know, what I advise founders, it, it, sometimes, listen, it's a clear case. You're going to raise an up round or you've justified a flat round. Um, other cases, it's unclear. Is this going to be a down round? Is this going to be a flat round? CEOs almost never assume it is. They say, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be flat at worst, right? Mm. I think that's when you let the market decide. You don't say, you don't go out and say, hey, this is the price, unless you have supreme confidence. I think you say, hey, we're raising this much money because it's the right thing to do for the business. And the way you get the price up is you get multiple bids. Ah, so let people put a price out there. And when you have multiple people bidding, then you can say, hey, listen, you came in at uh, 50. This person came in at 60 and another person came in at 80 to the two people who didn't hit 80. Is this something maybe you want to reconsider your offer? and? VCs take that well. That means, okay, yeah, we did diligence here. This is a real a company. And anchoring is one of these, what we call in the business, cognitive biases. This is something you and I do. And a lot of folks who are making investments, we look at our bias, right? We look at, hey, when are we thinking straight? When are we making good decisions? Because we're placing large bets. Maybe you talk just a little bit about the different cognitive biases that we face as investors. You must have thought of many of these over time. Yeah, um, there are, you know, a number of biases that venture investors can have. There's some of these cognitive biases, like a recency bias, like you, you know, heard about something recently and availability, bi uh, availability bias, which means um, maybe you uh, see it more often or more easily, like a consumer investment might seem more appealing, especially earlier in your career versus some deep infrastructure type of stuff that nobody's talking about. And then an anchoring bias um, certainly comes into effect. And that, that cuts both ways, right? We can, um, as venture investors, we can be anchored by the last round in a negative way or a founder telling us, hey, it's got to be at least X. But it's kind of always trying to ask yourself, why do I believe something um, and evaluating it uh, that, you know, as analytically as you can, that helps overcome these biases. Yeah. And the anchoring one, you, you see it all the time. The people will offer you an $800 Wagyu steak. Um, and you're like, no, I don't want the $800 Kobe steak. 
But yeah, I would love the Tomahawk for 150. Let's go with that. And and you know, the the venture version Seems of cheap, right? <laughs> hey, this AI company just raised at a billion and they didn't have revenue and so, you know, we're worth at least 750 to a billion, right? Like that's a different <laughs> that's a different company, you know, and maybe that round was 3 months ago or 6 months ago. Um I think that's one of the most common forms of anchoring we see for for entrepreneurs is another company or a friend perhaps raised a while back and and that's sort of the target or the bogey that the ceo has in their head all right number four on your list for mid and later stage startups bring on seasoned operators in c-level roles and for some companies that scale it might even mean bringing in professional ceos why is this so important in a down market and in the fundraising process because of the focus on unit economics, your growth's going to come down as you get more efficient uh, and cut burn. Um, so what investors are going to really evaluate is, well, if we put more capital into this business, could I imagine it growing at a faster rate or potentially keeping its current growth rate for a really long time? Because the inherent unit economics of the business are so good. Bringing on operators is really a way of saying, you know, experience, hopefully the right type of experience can help you achieve that operating efficiency because they've learned some of the hard lessons. They're not going to waste, you know, uh, an experienced CMO won't waste a bunch of money, for instance, in, you know, uh, poor performing customer acquisition channels. They're just going to hit the efficient frontier as soon as they come into that role. Mm. And I think that extends to all roles. Which leads it to your fifth point, trade better you're not economics for growth. Let's give an example here. What's an example? in this last 14 year bull run where people were trading growth for unit economics. And now we see maybe they've got to change that and go for unit economics over growth. I have a bunch of different ideas here. but I'm sure you have some at the tip of your tongue. So I mean, this is what's going on in the boardroom of nearly every series B and later company certainly that I'm involved with, which is you're saying, Okay, well, we could burn I'm just going to make up some numbers here, you know, we could burn 65 million. And, uh, you know, we're going to grow. 90% this year. Mm. But what happens if we wanted to burn less and we wanted to burn 40 million? What would the growth look like at that pace or 30 million? Mm. Is that an acceptable trade off? Okay, instead of growing 90%, we're going to grow 65%, but be efficient. And our magic number on sales is going to change from X to Y. Um, and then, you know, some deeper questions become well, what are the benefits of growth? Is this a land grab? Is are we early to the market? Is there a strategic reason that we want to get out there and get customers before others? Almost all founders and boards think they're in a land grab situation, but it's not always a land grab. Um, mm. It can be really hard to quantify why it's important to to grow a little faster this year. But I I think um, you know the truth is. In a time like this, you're being comped against, and I realize this is like later. I think maybe the next tweet. Um, mm. but you're, you're really comped against your sort of peer group. And mm. if in 2021 at your scale, you know, growing a hundred percent was the benchmark 2023, it's probably mm. not growing a hundred percent, um, right. forecasted growth rates for companies are coming down. And so you get a little bit of a gimme from venture investors, at least the savvy ones are saying, you know what, that's okay. We see you're growing a little slower, but you're pretty efficient. Um, and mm. we respect that. Right now, a lot of us are concerned about, if we were to use a metaphor, people finishing the race in one piece. And, you know, if you're going so fast that you're going to flip the car, and, and I'm talking about growth, 
you know, it's and it's unsustainable, man, it's very hard to change that inside of an organization. If you look at the dogged fight, Lyft, Sidecar, and Uber went through, DoorDash, Uber, Postmates, and, and a you know, another dozen forgotten delivery services for uh, food, you, know, you look at that competition, they were all being judged in a zero interest rate environment when there's plenty of money by their top line growth. You said it before, hey, what is the price to sales ratio here? How much was the total sales? And let's give them 10 times that. Now everybody's going to go and hey, is, can Airbnb actually be profitable on a unit economic basis? Is each room going to be profitable? And that is hard to change. Maybe we can talk about how hard that is for an organization just on a, a, a culture basis to change that thing. Yeah, um, I think that's right, especially the part about it being cultural. Um, if you tell your employees, hey, um, you know, set set the speed to maximum, you know, on the accelerator, like let's let's do everything as quickly as we can, get to market with the product sooner, more features, as big a sales team as possible. Um, you're conditioning your employees to think that's what matters, mm -hmm. that growth at all costs is what matters. And so, you know, I'm, I'm on a board of a company uh, that's an education called Paper. Um, and uh, the CEO there, co-founder, Phil Cutler, great founder. And he basically had a meeting, you know, told employees recently, hey, we want to make sure you're on board. Like with what we're doing today, um, it's about efficiency and growth and it's not growth at all costs. Mm. Um, and And Phil gave this speech, but Every single one of, you know, my great CEOs is, is giving this speech internally today, making sure it's not just about changing the expectations that, hey, what we care about is being good stewards of capital, about product market fit, happy customers, all those great things. Um, it's about making sure that your employees are still on board with that. There's going to be employees who, you know, were there for the good times and they and, you know, they might not want to opt into this next harder chapter of life um, for all companies. Um, and, you know, we saw this certainly uh, at Coinbase, um, Rose, uh, a board observer there. During the crypto winters, a lot of employees opted out. And, mm. and cri listen, crypto is an extreme. Um, sure. You know, people wanted to get in while the money was good and things were up and to the right. And then, you know, as soon as some doubt seeped into the market, a lot of people, um, you know, decided, hey, this is too much for me. But like, mm. sometimes you learn from the extremes and crypto is an extreme. But I think that also happens day to day in regular startups where you have some folks who are in it because they think the value of their options is going to, you know, 5x in a year. And as soon as that stops happening, you know, they were just there for the money. They're, they're not bought in. And so I think it's not only a good time to change the, um, the goals and, 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 set, and set that up for your employees and tell them what matters, but also make sure they're bought in. Missionary versus mercenary is how it was taught to me early on. You know, there, there are people who are mercenaries, they'll come in, they assume this is going to be the next Uber, Airbnb, Coinbase, whatever it is, they want to get that four year grant, they want to hit a big win, they did it before because they were at Google or Facebook or both. And those folks, if they aren't true believers, when you know, you hit a bump in the road and listen, Airbnb, <laughs> Uber, DoorDash, Coinbase, all companies hit bumps in the road. Literally all companies. Like name literally. one company that yeah. didn't hit a bump in the road at some point. And it's it's only because you didn't know about the bump, right? Like every- right. They disguised it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Facebook, yeah. mobile, and VR, AR, right? And they've had to survive both of those missteps, right? 
every single company. It always seems smoother from the outside. And and those are tough points for founders. They're tough points for boards. Um, but, you know, it, those tough moments like, the, listen, I don't want my thread to seem all doom and gloom because it's not. Like uh, maybe we can flip a little bit to talking about some of the bright side, like the, the yes. positive aspects of all this. Let's talk about that. What is the positive here for founders who are missionaries? Well, you know, I think this is like when this is the the cauldron or, or you know, that that sort of forges a lot of startups because they have to refine their product market fit. Um, competition tends to go away. It's no longer about a race. You refocus on what your customers need on the core product. Um, and honestly, this is like the times that I think, you know, the best startups can make. Hey, they, they, their customer acquisition costs are lower. You can hire better engineers. You can hire better talent because not everybody's, you know, obsessed with changing jobs every 12 months and optimizing pay. They begin to optimize sort of, you know, more globally around everything they're looking for in life and passion. Um, and so, you know, there's all these reasons that like, if, if you're really committed to your startup, um, you know, this is the best time, by the way, like for a regular rank and file employee, getting promoted easier. If you survive the cuts, getting promoted yeah. is easier. Your startup comes out stronger. They're not burning as much. What does that mean? You're not taking as much dilution from raising capital and from option grants. And so from the, from the founder to the VC, to the rank and file employee, like, well, if you can survive these times, these are some of the best times to grow a company. Yeah, I have to agree. And, and you know, this is where uh, the people will get the people who, you know, put their heads down and do the work are going to get rewarded. They're going to get another stock option grant. The companies uh, are going to reward the employees who remain even after the rifts and the layoffs. And you're going to get more experience and you're going to get more responsibility. And that's really what it's about when you're in the startup game. How much can I be responsible for, for the right person, for the person who's dedicated? How much can I be responsible for? How, how much of an impact I can make if the company's main product is raising the next round? That's really not great for the employees. Then they're just doing all these projects or working on 17 different things. It's really about that core business and making it profitable. Just think about all the talent that's going to be available. I can, maybe you could speak to just how challenging it's been. To, to get great talent on a team because of the number of teams and the fact that a startup is being asked to compete against Google, Amazon, Apple, and Alphabet for an employee. I mean, th these are places that have essentially money printing machines. They can make any offer they want. And that really doesn't work in a startup, does it? Yeah. If you look at the board decks for just about any of our companies, uh, you know, 2021, 20, you'd see that. You know, in this sort of the, a lot of times founders use this green, yellow, red, um, you know, uh, metaphor for what's going well, what's not going so great and what what needs to be fixed. And in the red, every single company for the last few years had talent um, attracting top talent, um, mm -hmm. not churning talent, not losing talent to, to the large, inter, you know, large cap Internet companies that you mentioned. Um, and lo and behold. Um, just in the last, you know, few quarters, all of a sudden that moved from red to yellow or yellow to green in many cases where all of mm. a sudden they can meet. Now they're hiring fewer people. So the goals are, are less aggressive, but they're, they're hiring, you know, on average, I think more tenured, more talented people for, for the same role and compensation. Well, and there you have it. You know, if you have 10 people fighting it out 
to get this one position, the chances of you having a true all-star take it go way up as opposed to, hey, you're trying to, you found somebody and they have 10 offers. It's literally night and day. And the same thing is happening, I think, in terms of customer acquisition costs. People are going to be able to spend marketing dollars more efficiently, no? I certainly hope so. Um, you know, that's one of the trickier things, especially on the B2C side, mm. um, with the changes in Apple, um, you know, that affected Facebook for ad targeting um, and, and the ability for folks to opt out. There was a, you know, I think a, a massive change that's that's gone on in the in the past uh, year or so. Um, and I think folks are still trying to recover there. So, uh, you know, jury's a little out on that side. On the B2B side, it's more straightforward. I think competition's receding and, and CACs will or recover a little bit um, better in terms of CACs going down. Um, and I hope that's true on the consumer side. I imagine... Um, anybody who had a, a COVID tailwind and now is facing a, co a COVID headwind, I imagine those CACs are going down, but there's some more complications on the consumer side for sure. Uh, as we wrap here, what's the ideal stage uh, for a company to approach you for investment for founders? And what are the what are your uh, personal signals that, hey, this is a match for me as an investor and somebody I want to partner with for the next decade to build this business? Yeah, great questions. Um, we are very focused on series B's and series C's, which means we like meeting companies right after they've raised their series A. We want to mm. get to know them, you know, months, if not a year or two before we're, we're funding them. Um, I want to develop chemistry, rapport with a founder. I don't want to meet a founder, you know, when he says, hey, we're kicking off a fundraising process, you know, in three days. That's, that can work. Um, but it's not the preferred route to go. If I can meet a founder, you know, months before they raise, that's better. I think that's better for the founder too. Listen, it's it's hard to say what makes a great founder and they come from all, you know, different stripes. So I don't think there's any one thing that makes a great founder to me, but a sense of, you know, there's some characteristics maybe. Um, an incredible sense of urgency is is one thing. And the second thing for me is an ability to distill a different perspective on the world in plain English. Like mm. if, if it seems complicated when the founder says it, it's going to seem complicated to the customers. It's going to seem complicated to their perspective um, employees, like this ability to kind of take what's complicated and really distill it yet. It still be compelling um, is just a magic quality. I'm not sure I have it, but mm. good founders do the, the Brian Armstrong's and, and Armand's uh, of the world, they've they've got it, um, and you know you just you just kind of feel it in the air when you when you meet that founder. Yeah, the ability to communicate well, super critical, and that sense of urgency to get things done and speed, uh, you know, intelligently is super critical. All right, listen, uh, great job on the program, great job with the tweet storm. Come back again soon. Uh, and continued success uh, in filling out those series B's and C's without maybe some of the venture tourists, which had to be incredibly frustrating to do what you do and then have people come in and let's just be honest, like do it in a less thoughtful way, I guess would be charitable. Uh, I think that's right. It, you know, I like to think this is both an art and a science. And, um, you know, it feels like we're we're getting back to the like artistry. Uh, a venture mm. here more of an artisan thing and not you know it's not costco 
we're trying to be no. personal with founders here. Yeah, this. I mean, I, the, the, I tell you the thing that stood out for me in our discussion is just the idea that somebody could put some large check into a company and then just ghost the founder. In one way, it makes sense because they were doing two deals a week, one deal a week. Um, and they had a portfolio approach, hey, let's just buy the index. But then you look at the reality of a founder having that kind of overhang that kind of slug into the company. And then they're not participating when you need them. Uh, and there's no follow on investment from them. There's no I mean, gosh, even to get signatures from them, you're going to need to get some signatures at some point to approve the next round. Where, where are these people? What are they doing? I think a yeah. lot of them left the firms they were at in some cases. Got to think of your investors more like building your team, like hiring an employee than just taking money. It's not a bank. It's no. another team member. What, what do you think founders should look for? You, you've seen bad behavior on boards from crazy venture capitalists. What's the worst thing you've seen a venture capitalist do without getting into specific names, please? We don't want to get ourselves in trouble here. But what's the worst behavior you've seen oh, from investors? And what should founders look for in terms of finding great investors? You want an, an investor who has conviction. Um, and they should develop that conviction as they do their diligence. They don't necessarily need it when they're uninformed, you know, on, on day zero. But as they learn more about your business, you can sense their excitement. And by the time they give you the offer, you sense, listen, venture funds are 10 years for a reason. They may be with you for a decade. Hmm. You know, they say it's harder to get out of a, a board or a, a, a investor relationship than a marriage. And that, I think yeah. that's largely true, especially in California. Um, so you want to be sure that you're finding the right person. So conviction, personal chemistry, if you don't want to grab a meal um, with your potential board member or investor, you know, step back a second and ask yourself, is this my preferred investor? Hmm. Um, I think they should know about your vertical, they should understand your industry. But you're not trying to hire another engineer, you want them to have a broad perspective, and feel like there's somebody who can have a chemistry with you where they can ask hard questions and push back. If mm. the chemistry isn't quite right, or you think they're too conflict avoidant, they're not going to ask the right questions. They're mm. not going to be a good board member. And in, ter in terms of like the worst behavior, listen, I I'm not going to call anybody out. Um, but I think generally like the pattern recognition for, for bad behavior is folks who aren't reading the board materials. They're not paying attention to the industry, but then they come in with really strongly formed opinions and aren't willing to change them you know in spite of what the founder's saying um it's it's lower eq you know combined with not doing the work and so mm. you want an investor who's you know not on 55 boards they're going to have the time for you because mm. if they don't have time they're not going to be informed yeah being informed and being able to have that intelligent conversation man being a you know, dictating to the founders. I see this sometimes on boards where people think they know how to run the company better than the founder. And then listen, you, you do get some signaling when you're doing this for a while and you can see some, you know, potholes ahead and, you know, turns to slow down on and be careful with and be thoughtful about. It. But man, you, you can't, no founder is looking for a boss. They're looking for somebody who's that guy down the side who can really have a good conversation with them, right? And uh, man, I, I, I do see that archetype of somebody who's ill-informed, underprepared, but then have these incredibly strong opinions. And you're like, what is that exactly based on? Like some company you founded 20 years ago or some, you know, incredible investment you had five years ago? Like, wh what about this moment, right? Like, we're in this moment with this company and this management team. Like, it's 
Fresh range. It, but it is an archetype, huh? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the meme out there in Founderland is that that's 75% of VCs. In my experience, <laughs> it's not. Like, at least no. with the quality of companies I've been privileged enough to work with, it's pretty rare to see that. Most board members are very engaged, work really hard for their founders. Um, but, you know, it only takes one bad board member to really poison the chemistry of a room. Um, and so I think being really choosy about who you bring onto your board, um, is a really, really important thing. Um, otherwise, you know, you can derail a really high quality eight person conversation with one person who doesn't know what they're talking about. Think in the cognitive bias list, it's salience bias tendency to focus on items that are more prominent or emotionally striking and <clears throat> ignore ones that are unremarkable, right? Like sometimes people just will look at venture capitalists or founders and they see, I don't know, Adam Newman do something walking around in bare feet and they think, oh, well, all founders are working around in bare feet and smoking weed on G650s and oh, all VCs are doing this bad behavior and replacing founders. And it's like, no, you just, you're remembering those because they're so memorable. What we do in building companies is, is much more pragmatic it's tactical it's strategic it's a lot of blocking and tackling and just showing up every day every week every month month after month quarter after quarter year after year and doing the work and i think i think that is i think a good place to end when you said like <laughs> doing the work and being prepared come with a prepared mind everybody come with a prepared mind to that board meeting and to that business and that opportunity listen Great first appearance here on This Week in Startups, and I uh, would love to have you back on again. Continued success, and uh, we'll see you all later. Uh, have a great day. Thank you. All right, that's it for today, folks. We will see you back here tomorrow, Wednesday. Thanks to producer Rachel for filling in for Jason. Look out. <laughs> Thanks for having your, me on. Your job is safe from AI, but is Jason's job safe from you? Dun, dun, dun. Uh -oh. Just kidding. Just kidding, boss. <laughs> Tomorrow, we have another episode of Angel. This season of Angel is like beyond fascinating. Yet another three-cycle investor, Devin Parekh of Insight, is going to be come on, coming on tomorrow with some lessons learned. You do not want to miss it. We'll see you then. Awesome. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>